If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Around 2.5 million Indian soldiers fought in the Second World War. And behind this staggering number lies a complex web of emotional experiences. And that tangled web is something that Dia Gupta unpicks in her new book, India in the Second World War, An Emotional History. I spoke to Dia to find out more about how both soldiers and civilians felt about the war and how it impacted on Indian lives. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to talk today about your book, India in the Second World War, An Emotional History. I wanted to start by just asking you about that title, An Emotional History. What do you mean by that? Can you tell us a bit about your approach? Yes, of course. I mean, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really delighted to be here to talk about the book. And uh, you're not the first person to question me about that title. And in some ways, I'm glad I put it in there because it's intrigued many people. For me, I think, you know, emotions have always been an important route into understanding history. And an honest confession, my training has been as a literary scholar and then as a historian. And I think, you know, because of that approach, I, I prioritize human experience and, and therefore the emotions that result from those sorts of experiences over and above other things. So I was sort of 
curious, let's put it that way, I was curious about India's involvement in the Second World War, of which there is quite a lot being written about at the minute, although there hasn't been much written at all in the last, you know, 80 years or so. But what interested me was how little there was about uh, the cultural history of India in the Second World War. The region took part in this global war. Two and a half million men from undivided India participated in the war. They served for the British. At the same time, there was this catastrophic famine that took place in eastern India during the war in which, you know, over three million people died. And there was also this extraordinary story of the defectors, if you like, from the, the Indian army who joined up with the nationalist militaristic forces. The Indian National Army was formed out of former prisoners of war and expatriate Indians in, in Southeast Asia and they fought against the British for India's liberation. So so I guess what I'm trying to say here is really that there was a lot of conflicted, turbulent, contested history taking place and for me it led to a really rich emotional terrain. So I was very interested in how, you know, how were people writing about this? How were they talking about this? How were they living through these times and how did they represent themselves? So I really want to delve into that subjective human experience of of soldiers and civilians from India during the Second World War in this conversation. But before we do, just so that everybody is on the same page, for people who might not know too much about India's involvement in the Second World War, can you give us a very quick picture? So what roles did Indian soldiers take on? What arenas did they fight in? And what was the status of the country at the time? Indian involvement in the Second World War was quite intense. So India was at that time in the 1940s, uh, this is early 1940s, still part of the British Empire. And it was used extensively as a resource base for the, the empire, for the allies to fight against Axis forces. And this included having two and a half million men in total sign up to fight for the British. And this was largely regarded, I think, as the biggest volunteer army in the world. And I'd like to question this idea of of what a, a volunteer army meant, if you like. We can come to that. And these men were sent to practically all theatres of war. So they were in the Middle East, they were in North Africa, in Italy, in Greece, they were in Burma, Malaya, Singapore. They were in Europe. You know, there was Force K6 who was at Dunkirk, for example. So there's a real kind of breadth to where Indian men were sent to across the world. And therefore, it's extraordinary that we don't know more about their their emotions, their rich inner lives, and of those they left behind at home. So for me, I think, of course, you know, the starting point is the veteran experience. But I'm equally interested in those who were the civilians. I'm interested in the Indian home front, if we can put it in those terms, and what the war meant for people back home. So I want to pick up on something you mentioned there about questioning the nature of a volunteer army. So all these millions of Indian men who did sign up to fight, what motivated them? That's a really good question and it's an important one to try and understand because it's not traditional ideas of signing up to fight for a cause you believe in necessarily. So I'd say very broadly speaking, there's about 
two main reasons why Indian soldiers were signing up for this war. I mean, one of the reasons was that in particular areas of India, like in North India, say the Punjab region, this was a region that was really well known for for sending men throughout the generations to fight for the British as well as before the British. There were men there who were fighting for the Mughal armies. So they, they have a long sort of familial history of participating in military activities. So Part of that signing up in the Second World War is continuing with those familial traditions, which are tied up in ideas of masculinity, you know, martial prowess, certain types of honour. So that's sort of one aspect of it. And this kind of corresponds to, to what the British called at that time, it was a completely spurious theory, but they called it the martial race theory. So this was when, you know, the different ethnicities within India were categorised by the British according to what was perceived to be their martial abilities. So men from northern India were were considered to be extremely martial. So this was seen as something innate and, and kind of inherently possessed by men from North India. And equally, there were men from, say, East India, from South India, who were seen as effeminate, you know, not masculine enough, not manly enough, and therefore not worthy, if you like, of signing up to the Indian army. Now, the Second World War completely reverses all of this. I mean, the British need men. They really, really are desperate to recruit. And so recruitment practices and the need for men just breaks down the martial race theory. And, you know, you have South India contributing extremely high numbers of men. And there are significant numbers of men also from East India who sign up. So I I talked a little bit about, you know, the idea of family honour and family tradition But what about these men then from, say, East India and South India? I mean, why were they signing up? And it was often because the war was being sold to them as an opportunity to receive training, to have a profession, to be ready and fit for purpose once India ultimately got its independence. So it was like a launching pad, if you like, for professional opportunities. And to put it less grandly, it was simply, you know, a place where poor men could go and be assured that they would get enough to eat. So there are sort of nutritional records that show that underweight, anemic men were being signed up in the army. And actually, their nutritional patterns improve, their health improves, they have better access to to medicine, their families have better access to resources at home because they are in the army. So there's a whole sort of nexus of benefits that comes with, with, you know, signing up to the army. And that's why lots of men do so. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's really interesting that the things you've highlighted there are cultural and they're quite pragmatic as well. Whereas I think perhaps in Europe, there was a more of an ideological narrative at play. There was an idea that the war was this great battle against the evil powers of fascism. How much did that translate in India? Were people engaged with or motivated by this fight against Hitler or did they feel fairly detached from that? Yeah, again, that's a that's a really great question, I think. And and the answer is a, is a complex one, I think. So, again, speaking in, in broad terms, if you look at the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters that soldiers were, were writing themselves to loved ones back at home and the letters they were receiving from their loved ones, there are fewer than maybe 20 mentions of Hitler in them. So, really, Hitler does not occupy the soldier's imagination his emotions, and neither does he fulfill some sort of role in in the soldiers' families' lives back at home. It's really a far away concept, I think, who is Hitler. I mean, there's this great anecdote I came across where um, someone in a village, in an Indian village, is asked, you know who Hitler is? You know, Hitler Badmash, you know, the, the bad Hitler. And he says, is that the village accountant? So, you know, is this a real sense of, you know, his, it's the economics of village life that this, this particular village prioritizes, you know, rather than something that's happening many thousands of miles away in Europe. Having said that, though, you know, soldiers' letters are sort of one layer of, of sources that I, that I excavate. There was, amongst more elite privileged groups, definitely a consciousness of the rise of fascism. Jawaharlal Nehru, who was then part of the Indian National Congress and later becomes the first prime minister of India, was one of those who was deeply and committedly anti-fascist. And, you know, there are these anti-fascist sort of slogans being written and talked about and there are songs being sung about by the Indian People's Theatre Association, which is formed out of this kind of collective anti-fascist feeling. But I'd have to say here that For those who were fighting fascism or thought of themselves as ideologically opposed to fascism, did not see it as something excluded from colonialism. So if you had to fight against fascism, you equally had to fight against colonialism. They were not separated from one another in Indian people's minds. So to narrowly view the Second World War as simply the fight against fascism, I think, was largely a reductive point of view for India. Because, you know, whose freedom then are you talking about? If you want to talk about the freedom of all peoples, you've got to talk about the freedom from colonialism as well. And I think that's what interested me in this period so much, because so many different points of view could be held at the same time. Yeah, it's such a complicated picture, as you say. So how did the ordinary Indian soldier feel about Britain who they were, in theory, fighting alongside and fighting for? It's a good question and it's a, it's a difficult one to answer because really what we're looking at here in terms of source material is colonial archives. So the letters I mentioned before have been archived in these military censorship reports that were created by a high-ranking British officer from the, the hundreds of letters that he was intercepting and reading. 
And the soldiers know that the letters are being intercepted and read, you see. And so do their friends and family members back at home. So I think there are there is a process of self-censorship that's going on here as well. There are certain things which soldiers are not going to talk about, particularly in terms of resisting the British. These are not things that are openly discussed in the letters. Instead, what you do find is, you know, some of the letters are quite openly expressing gratitude to his majesty and this noble fight that is happening in which, you know, the Indian soldier is so proud to be a part of. So there are these sort of kind of quite open expressions of of thankfulness and gratefulness to an economic provider. Let's put it that way. Ways in which resistance is articulated is much more subtle, simply because I think soldiers are not able to say all that they feel. That doesn't, of course, mean they don't feel all of it. They're just not able to express it. And sometimes it's sort of refracted. It's uh, Soldiers will say things like, I haven't been home to see you for so long, but what can I do? These are not my choices. Uh, I'm not being granted leave. And for me, being abroad, serving as an imperial soldier, is, is similar to that of a prisoner who doesn't know when he's going to be released. So it's in those sorts of statements that you can see a form of resistance coming out, you know, when the soldier is aware of how little he knows and how, how little he's able in some ways to shape his own destiny because it's been controlled by colonial authorities in, in such a kind of pervasive way. Or there are letters that talk about uh, soldiers who, who are tired and weary and dispirited. And that, I think, is another form of resistance being articulated. So you really have to read kind of carefully the language of the letters to try and understand where resistance is being formed. And I guess it's important to say, isn't it, that in any fighting force, you're going to have a huge diversity of experience. Some people are going to thrive on on the adventure and the new opportunities. Others are going to find it much more difficult. Something, as you mentioned earlier, you also look at is the experience of civilians, Indian civilians in the war. What were some of the key moments or events in the war that really impacted on them? I think it's fair to say that India overall, I mean, I'm talking about undivided India here. So before pre-partition India, so including modern day Pakistan, Bangladesh and India. So it, it went through sort of severe wartime shortages. And I think the most, most sort of extreme example of this is famine. And famine took place most famously in the eastern part of India, in Bengal. So the 1943 Bengal famine was a direct product of war. Again, something that's little recognized. But there were also extreme food shortages in South India. Um, There were food shortages in West India. And, you know, there was just shortage of essential items as well, paper, kerosene, clothes. And these are things that you see sort of reflected in in some of the letters that I've been discussing. People are constantly talking about the rise of prices, the insane rise of prices, and how normal commodities, everyday commodities are just, you know, vanishing from the market, or they're completely priced out of being able to afford them. So I think, yeah, famine is one great instance, and linked to it is other types of shortages, is extreme and unchecked inflation, and uh, really very poor management of, of food resources within the country and 
no rationing at all until the famine is well underway. So this is towards the end of 43, do you find the first sort of rationing of food coming in? And it struck me that if I'm going to write an emotional history of, of India in the Second World War, and if I'm going to look at home front experiences, I simply must include the famine because in some ways it is as linked to the war as the Blitz was in the UK or bombings in Germany were to civilian lives. It's the same sort of effect. It's a different form of violence that comes to civilian people. It's not violence in the form of bombs or it's not violence you know, in the form of incendiaries or, or whatever or, or a gun, but it's the slow violence of hunger. And that, to me, a hunger as a product of war, and that, to me, became a really kind of important aspect of Indian war experience. As you say, it's such a defining moment for India in the conflict. You look a lot at poetry and at literature as well. What kind of responses do you see to the famine in those realms? There was plenty. So, so there was this whole generation of hunger poets, if you like, in Bengal at that time, who were perhaps themselves not not undergoing starvation because, you know, the tragedy of, of something like a famine is the people who, who suffer from it the most don't survive to tell us their stories, or very few of them do. But it's, it's the testimony of onlookers, of witnesses, which becomes really important here. And there's this whole raft of poetry that was written in the 1940s. So I'll, take, I'll give you one example. I, I look at the poetry of uh, Shukanto Bhattacharya, this young Bengali poet who was part of the Communist Party of India at that point and was, was directly involved with relief work in the famine. And he writes extraordinary poems about the famine and about, in some ways, being chained to history. He feels like there is no escape for him from this history. And this is something he's compelled to write about because it's so visceral. It's so real. And, you know, it, it does things to poetic form as well. You know, there was a, a, a real kind of shift in, in the ways in which poetry was articulated. So uh, a shift towards modernist practices, you know, towards an economy of language, towards sharper imagery, towards less romanticism, you know. So Shukanta, for example, takes the image of the moon, which is, if you like, this quintessential romantic image of the moon. And there's so much poetry written about the romance of the moon. But he says, to me, it looks like uh, a burnt out roti, roti or, a, you know, a flatbread, the Indian roti. That's what it looks like to me. You know, it hovers there in the sky above me. And to me, it's just the burnt out ruti. So everything, even this, this great, beautiful moon is reduced to food. So, so yeah, so there's this extraordinary literary movement that's happening as a result, you know, as, as, a, as a product of famine and war. I wanted to ask you about some of the other voices that you think are, are key voices for us to, to get the Indian perspective on the war from. I was very keen to have a diversity of voices in there. And that includes women, it includes men, civilians, veterans. So I, I really range from, you know, the rank and file Indian soldier's letter, you know, someone who's just yearning to come home on leave because he hasn't seen his family in so long, right to say Mulkraj Anand's novel, The Sword and the Sickle, or Rabindranath Tagore's writing uh, his last essay, Crisis in Civilization, where he thinks, you know, I cannot believe there's a global war happening again. 
caused by Europe. There's another war. We just had the First World War. And so he sees this as this kind of utter collapse in what was considered to be the civilized part of the world. And he sees, uh, this is Tagore, he sees at the heart of that civilization barbarity. And that barbarity has been colonialism. And he sees that that barbarity, which, you know, Europe, he says, had inflicted on all parts of the world, bringing it under its empires, the Second World War, the First World War, are ways in which that barbarity is coming home to Europe. Well, leading on from that point from Tagore, can you tell us a bit about how the war effort became entangled with the fight for independence in India? So, I mean, if you think about the time when, when Indian men are being recruited to the Indian Army. At the same time, you have the biggest concerted effort to push the British out of India, which is the 1942 Quit India movement. And these two things are happening, you know, as analogous events. So, I mean, I really feel that without the Second World War, India wouldn't have achieved independence when it did. And this is for many reasons, you know, part of it was the intense anti-colonial efforts within the country. But also because, you know, Indian men who'd signed up, I think, to fight this war were coming back with, you know, new ideas about their rights, political and otherwise, of the opportunities that should be there for them in their country. They were not willing to be subjects, if you like, colonial subjects. They were much more assertive and much more confident about what they were owed, I think, after the Second World War. And really, you see this peculiar moment. It's not commented on very much in history, but I find it fascinating. When you have the end of the war in 1945, you have Indian independence with, you know, the horrors of partition in 1947, and you have this interim year, 1946, and someday maybe I'll, I'll write something on 1946 because it's a fascinating year. And that's where you see, you know, the British are completely losing power in India. So there's the, the Red Fort trials when, you know, INA, the Indian National Army men, are being court-martialed. But the sentences have to be commuted because there's such popular outcry against the fact that there is this court-martial happening at all. And there are the Royal Indian Navy mutinies. There's revolution and rebellion at, uh, at every uh, step. And I think the British, who are also considerably weakened after the war, just see their, their grip over the colony slipping away. And in some ways, I think, you know, the Second World War accelerates independence for good or bad. In many ways, I think independence was also a rushed job and a botched job because of the ways in which it carved up the subcontinent. And so against this complicated backdrop, how does the Second World War get remembered in India today? How is it reflected on? I would say until recently, very little, you know. So so I grew up in India. I, I studied, I did all my schooling there. You know, I, I enjoyed my history classes. I knew about Hitler, let's put it that way. But it was something really far removed. This was, you know, this was European history. I had absolutely no idea whatsoever that India even had a role in the Second World War. I mean, I knew about the 1942 Quit India movement, but the fact that there were also two and a half million men fighting for the British at the same time did not know that at all. So I think it's, it's really been a very marginalized history. Surprisingly so. Surprisingly so, considering the extent of Indian involvement in the war. 
And I, I think this is beginning to be reversed now. So there is quite a bit of interest in Indian involvement in the war. I can see a lot more discussion of it in Indian newspapers, for example. But I'm always a little bit hesitant when, you know, the ways in which war experience is remembered in narrowly heroic terms. And I'm, I'm kind of hesitant about it in the UK. I'm hesitant about it in India as well. For me, writing about war, understanding war, studying war, is not really about heroism at all. It's really about a terrible and turbulent time. It's a time of global violence. This was a war in which conservative estimates say 60 million people died. You know, that's nearly the population of the UK. So it's it's really to, to view the war in more complicated ways, to try and see, you know, does it leave us with legacies of trauma or, or of pain, of endurance, of anger, perhaps, you know, of sorrow? I mean, there are so many accounts of kind of Indian veterans coming home who then don't speak about the war. You know, they just they don't just don't talk about their war experience at all. And I'll, I'll very briefly mention a, a prisoner of war memoir that I discuss in the book, which which I, I think speaks to this moment. And this is John Baptist Cruster's memoir, Eaten by the Japanese. It's not a title. He gave the memoir, but that's how it's been published. And Cruster is, a, is this ordinary Indian soldier he survives, you know, terrible conditions in captivity under the Japanese, but he does manage to be liberated. And he writes, you know, with a pencil, he writes on yellowing paper when he's recovering his health back home. He's, he's writing, writing, writing about his experiences. And then he, he just, he never publishes them. He just, they just sit forgotten, buried in a trunk somewhere in his home. And it's only many, many years later, his son discovers these papers and decides to publish the memoir. And, you know, for me, that becomes such a, such a metaphor, such a telling image of Indian experiences of the war. You know, there was so much to say and some did say it, but it was just buried and forgotten. Why do you think that? That is, as you say, more than two million men fought, a huge amount of people. Is it because there was an uncomfortableness about the fact that they'd been fighting for the British in, in post-independence India? Is that why you think the war isn't more discussed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, 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 the forgetting, if you like, the marginalisation happens, you know, both in the UK as well as in India. And I think from the Indian perspective, yeah, absolutely. We learned. I mean, I learned nationalist history. There were these great men of history who fought against British colonial rule, and this is what they achieved, and the final result was independence. So it was a very kind of goal-oriented, one step, then two step, then three step, and then you reach this. There was, there was no room for complexity in there. It's a similar story, I think, in the UK, which, you know, has a, a post-war has a really, really reductive view of its own role in the Second World War, where, you know, it says, you know, we fought alone. Well, no, you didn't. You had your whole empire fighting with you. And this is something that was very much recognised in the 40s. It's only later that that kind of really important narrative has been lost. Um, so I, I think in both both countries, if you like, nationalism has has kind of relegated this more complicated history to the sidelines well, thank you, dear. It's been really, really fascinating talking to you. Just to finish us off, I wondered if there were any accounts or novels or poems, perhaps, that really struck a chord with you and kind of stuck with you that you wanted to leave us with. 
Yes, of course. I realize I've been talking so much and I haven't mentioned women, which is terrible of me. You know, if you're going to look at uh, marginalized histories, there are hierarchies in that marginalization and men's voices are come much more to the forefront than women's. It's been a struggle, frankly, to look for women's voices. But uh, but yeah, there are two poems that I've really, really loved, written in English by two women who came from quite sort of privileged elite backgrounds in India. And one of these poems is by this lady called called Tara Ali Beg, who writes about the Bengal famine. And it's an extraordinary piece of poetry because she inhabits the roles of different people experiencing famine. So uh, one is of an old woman and one is of uh, a, a suffering farmer. And then she sort of takes on the voice of the collective sufferers saying, you know, why us? Why did this happen to us? What did we ever do to anybody to deserve this? And uh, it's interesting to me that in the in the poem, she talks about her own subjectivity diminishing. You know, she feels like, who is this I who is witnessing all this? It's almost like what she's witnessing is too much for her to even bear the weight of, you know? So there's a sense of like collapsing, the poem is collapsing under the weight of the atrocity. So that's that's something that's absolutely extraordinary. I think it's just called 1943 Bengal Famine. And there's another female writer called Muriel Vasi, who's also really interesting, and she's part of the Women's Auxiliary Corps in India doing sort of home front work. And she is a staunch sort of anti-fascist and, and an anti-imperialist. And she has this uh, much more, shall we say, Victorian-style poem where she talks about the suffering nation of India and sees it as a, as a kind of weeping mother and says, you know, the world is turning its back on you now because you suffer, but I am here. You know, she's the one who remains. I am here to stay with you and to kind of nurture you and look after you. And there's this real sense in both women's lives and their writing that the war has kind of made them activists in particular ways, you know. They want to do good in the world, whatever that might be. And I found both these poems incredible and very moving. That was Dia Gupta speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorne. Dia's book, India in the Second World War, An Emotional History, is published by Hearst. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.